George Gurdjieff, Armenian mystic, uh, luminary, perhaps crazy wisdom teacher, all kinds of things. I mean, tell me about your relationship to Gurdjieff and, uh, and, and why he's important, why he's of interest to you. He's a name that I first found um, reading some of the avant-garde philosophers of the 1970s. I'm thinking of Robert Anton Wilson and Colin Wilson as people who singled this guy out as um, uniquely friendly to a modern scientific and post-postmodern sensibility with a great deal of neurological self-awareness, a very interesting personality, and a rather dramatic ability to understand human psychology and the mechanics of peak experiences. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about him is just his range, like his affective range. Unlike a lot of other Dharma teachers, he's an entrepreneur, a linguist, a dancing instructor, an adventurer, an archaeologist, a hypnotherapist, an avant-garde author. He has all of these other different dimensions to himself that he blends together to make a really rich and unconventional presentation of wisdom teaching. Uh, my tendency is to describe him to people as a blend of the Buddha, Indiana Jones, and Borat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you, what do you think is essential? Like, that's all the things he does. He does many things, and he had a wildly adventurous life and an interesting life. And uh, um, I've read a couple biographies of him, and he has this kind of life that you you don't imagine a human being could live. You know, only the overman <laughs> could possibly live uh, like that. But in, in any case, um, but also he has this very essential teachings, I think, which... Um, don't knock you over the head, but seem to be axioms, in my view. They they stick with you, and and uh, you keep working on them. And would you agree with me there? Oh, absolutely. I think he um, has some very deep and uniquely expressed insights into the way that human psychology and human spiritual development functions. Although, when it comes to what the teaching is, there's um, there's some controversy there, or some complexity. Let's say. Yeah. Because there's one, there's a very famous set of uh, articulations of what would be the Gurdjieff Fourth Way teaching, uh, very influenced by Uspensky's phraseology and promoted by the Gurdjieff Foundation over several generations. And if you pick up a book that says these are the teachings of Gurdjieff, you'll get a list of propositions about how we're asleep or we're robots and we have to self-remember and awaken ourselves. Um, so th there's a lot of truth to that, but at the same time, there are people who've critiqued that and said, that's not actually what's in his writings. That's not actually what he was teaching. Um, there's a there's a different way to come at it that's based more directly on his articulations around uh, blending centers, around the subconscious being the true consciousness, and on the phenomenology of creating something like a higher body within us that would work with the deep ecology of the environment in which we've emerged. And then the third problem with the teaching, other than those two aspects, is this issue that, and he brings this forth in his actions and his commentary with people really well, is the teaching expressed in the propositional statements about the teaching, or is the teaching the effect that statements have on students? So one of the things mm -hmm. he will tend to do, it seems like, is present variations or even the opposite of what a true statement is in order to provoke some kind of creative struggle in a student, because the teaching consists of causing an individual to idiosyncratically produce some of their own insight 
not to receive and be able to replicate someone else's propositional claims. So some big part of Gurdjieff's Dharma is separate from any of the statements we could make about what that Dharma is. Oh, that's very interesting um, because you've already sort of shifted my consciousness of how I think of him because, you know, he, he talks about man as being machine man, right? It's one of his phrases, and he talks about that. He talks about people are asleep. He says you're asleep. He says everybody's asleep. Um, you know, he, his his teaching is kind of an insult, you know, to to the to the ego or to our image of ourselves. Often, a very, and it it, it strikes one as negative and harsh. Um, and also, I think it's profound what you're saying that that uh, that that and and which is why he's hard to approach is that his statements are are enigmatic and and, and provocative and, and are not propositional in, in a in a sense. Hmm. Yeah, there's several ways to think about that. I mean, one of the interesting things that is brought forward by contemplating Gurdjieff's teaching is the notion of a difference between a Dharma in which people all receive the same instruction and practice it and replicate it in how they transmit it to others mm-hmm. versus a dharma in which people work primarily with subconscious and strange idiosyncratic elements of their unique psyche and by cultivating those they converge with other people who have also cultivated the unique idiosyncratic subconscious capacities of their psyche So you end up down the road with a lot of agreement between people, but it might be something that uh, begins in a very strange, very personal, very unique kind of a way. And I think that's one of the things his teaching does is tailor itself to individuals very well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word subconscious, and I've never heard that word in Gurdjieff's teaching particularly. So this is an interesting feature, right? So I'd I'd like to hear... Yeah, if you read the Gurdjieff lineage as inspired by the sort of, let's call it the Uspenskian framing, you won't hear much about this. But if you start reading Beelzebub's Tales, he makes a point very early on in that text that the subconscious mind, what we call the subconscious mind, is what he considers to be our real consciousness. And Mm -hmm. so that's an important thing to keep in mind when you start later thinking, what does he mean by conscious labor, for example, if what he means by the consciousness is what we call the subconsciousness. So we need to keep in mind that he's he was a trained hypnotherapist. He's doing his writing in Paris at the same moment when the surrealists are coming to the forefront. There's a lot of of discussion in his work, especially his early work around essence as opposed to personality, around Mm. a kind of consciousness that maybe we had as children that has gotten submerged in our social linear thinking and how do we work with this how do we work with our non-linear and even irrational instincts to cause those to be cultivated to a level where they could take over for us and we could be truly capable of doing truly capable of being awake in a way that isn't possible to the sort of foreground conscious personality that wakes up every morning yeah well, I, I, I think a lot of his, his teachings are designed to, even, even in their form, are designed to deconstruct that persona, right? Um, that's what they're all about. And then what's underneath the persona is the, is the interesting question. And often he talks about it as being, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or consciousness. Um, and you're calling it subconsciousness. So I'm, I'm a little bit confused. 
Well, the terms I think he deliberately uses in various different ways because he wants us to get a sense for the structures and not get attached to any of the particular phrasing. One of the famous yeah. things he does is invent completely new and strange terms for things because yeah. there is a tendency in any Dharma tradition of people to think they know what the teacher is talking about and become over fixated on the terminology. So he does try to keep it very much open. Like he if talks he about the Kunda buffer instead of the, the Kundalini, he has all these very odd words to describe different phenomenon. And you never know whether he means the Kundalini or he means something else or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very playful. They're very artistic and they put you very much in front of the ambiguities surrounding the teachings. He had a very deep critique of the way that wisdom is normally conveyed. Um, Jill Nephew called Beelzebub's Tales a compendium of the failure modes of psychotechnologies, and I think that's one of the things it does very well, because in the entire tale of human history, every single one of the saints and avatars fails. Every one of them brings forward a teaching which is completely misunderstood and distorted by sincere students in the very first generation. So Gurdjieff's mind is constantly on the failure of our conscious personality in understanding and turning wisdom into practice, that there's some inherent distortion in the front part of the personality. It's not really getting these things. And in order to awaken consciousness, in order to awaken conscience, in order to activate the natural parts of ourselves that could grow into something more like a being, we have to reach into our instincts and our subconscious depths. And that requires different kinds of practices than are required by simply um, doing your yoga or believing some proposition or doing a witnessing meditation. It requires vitality. It requires struggle. It requires changing the relationships between the different subparts of the self. Very vital, very energetic, but you could describe it as subconscious or you could describe it as conscious. And I think the ambiguity of that affords us a great number of options that are often closed down in the traditional ways that Dharma is described. Okay, there's a couple uh, things I want there. One is, do you think that his teachings also have become corrupted the way you said that you know most of the avatars, most of the, the masters, most of the, most, you know, you look back in history and you see that the, you know, they, that they become corrupted by their first, second, third generation students. Um, is that is that the case with, with Gurdjieff or or not? Oh, to some but, degree. Although no one's degree. no one's in a perfect position to make that assessment, and yeah. each person who's going through any kind of dharma is capable of being more or less empty and superficial, or more or less uh, lively and regenerative in the way that they hold that dharma. Um, but there is a sense uh, some people in the lineage make this critique, which is the kind of teaching classically associated with Gurdjieff and put forward by the Gurdjieff Foundation is, mm -hmm. is flat, has a kind of dead end, has a kind yeah. of ceiling to it, and is corrupted in the way that he predicted it would be corrupted. And there is an argument in the fourth way that he did this on purpose in order to have that be the provocation for people to recover the teaching by deviating from it. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, yeah, one, I mean, of the, one of the things is that it's Beelzebub's tales to his grandson, not to his son, right? So uh -huh. you can say, well, he expects the next generation to get it wrong, and he's trying to pass the message to a generation that's correcting for the next generation. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, that's my sense, actually, is that that his teachings are, are you know, in, in a way, they're, they're pretty solid, and they're for the future. 
but they they don't they don't really work right now in terms of communities and you know it's like it's hard to, to for people to figure them out so so i think i agree with you about that um and that's yeah that's that's another sign why i i think he's a great teacher because he's he's writing for for generations beyond himself in a way and, and he he his you, you can you can discover him at any point um um, and I think also that his teachings can apply to different schools. Like, like I've been in, in, in uh, Hindu tantric schools where they talk a lot about Gurdjieff. I've been in Bajrana schools where they talk a lot about Gurdjieff. He seems to be able to navigate the different schools and, uh, um, and be important to a lot of people in different communities. Yeah, part of that is that he's very focused, almost in an engineering way, on what are the deep principles that transform people. And yeah. what are the proto skills that underlie whatever practices you're using? And that's one of the things that attracts me because that's one of my areas of interest. But another part is that the framing of what they call the fourth way is meant to be something that exists between and around and prior to all of the other major wisdom traditions in human experience. Okay, that's good. Because that, that was the next uh, thing that I wanted to ask you about it. We get into his methodology, get into his practices, get into what what he what you do, uh, you know, with Gurdjieff, you know, so, uh, you know, there's, there's self remembrance practice, uh, and things like that, which, in some ways are similar to mindfulness. And in some ways, I think they're not the same thing. I think they're way deeper than mindfulness. Um, I don't know. I mean, the way, at least a shallow version of mindfulness that, that most, most, you know, Western Buddhists talk about. Yeah. I think yeah. of a difference between I am like in terms of a sort of gentle witnessing, accepting presence of consciousness and a phrase mm. like I totally fucking am, which has this degree mm. of, of individual intensity of, of emotional and somatic intensity that's coupled with the mental observing witnessing quality. And Gurdjieff was uh, very deliberately, this is one of the famous things about him, is he's constantly working to generate additional effects through the harmonization of the sub-personalities that are functioning within our inner community. Yes. When he talks about self-remembering, there's several different ways to take it, right? If you read straight up Uspensky, you'll get this notion that you're supposed to split your awareness between the objects of your experience and your sense of self all the time to try to deliver mm -hmm. a conscious shock that will produce some additional energies for you. Now, that's a very interesting practice, um, but it's one that's emphasized primarily by Uspensky and not very much by Gurdjieff. If you read uh, Teachings of Gurdjieff by C.S. Knott, there's a very interesting exchange later in life where Uspensky says to Knott, what is Gurdjieff saying about self-remembering lately? And Knott says he never talks about self-remembering. He talks about red pepper. Well, there's a sense in uh -huh. which the both of the communication styles between these two men are very different, but there's a sense in which your visceral overall stimulation and provocation is a large part of what Gurdjieff is pointing to as self-remembering, that you're recovering the um, multi-systemic vitalization of your individual beingness in a given moment, and not just being the metacognitive watcher of your thoughts and actions. Yes. Uh, so it's not a question of detachment. I, I was reading J John Salzman also was saying that most people have, people have misunderstood that term self-remembrance. And maybe that's the same misunderstanding as as this kind of witnessing or, or um, you know, an invita, uh, this, this kind of, you know, you, you, a detachment from, from experience. Um, uh, yeah. 
So, and also he talks about, um, and also he's very keen on the work. In other words, he's very keen on inner work. Uh, um, it's not just relaxing and going with the flow and observing your mind and, and you know, acceptance. And there, there's, a, there's a provocative kind of, you know, forcefulness, I think, to his teaching as well. Yeah, it's very vital, uh, very dynamic, very generative, uh, but it's balanced as well, right? If you read um, some of the later conversations that are transcribed with students from the last 10 or 20 years of his life, he'll say to them things like divide your waking time into three sections. One third yeah. of it is devoted to active work on yourself. One third of it is devoted to deliberately relaxing yourself. And one third of it is devoted to just automatically being whoever you happen to be. So he's not saying right. that you should be doing the inner work all the time. You have to give yeah. yourself processing time, rest time, assimilation time, and you have to live your life. But yeah. when you're engaged in spiritual pursuits, you need to understand that it requires energy and it requires intentionality. And it's just as much of an effort as any other kinds of physical tasks in life. And that if you try to base your spirituality on ease and calmness and tranquility and release, you might get some initial benefit, but you're going to end up in a kind of developmental cul-de-sac. Yeah, that's well spoken. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. I wonder, I mean, I'm also wondering about, because I, I was reading a story about um, Alistair Crowley went to visit him um, in, in Avon, where I live, actually. Um, I'm actually a neighbor of, of Gurdjieff. I, I sometimes go to his grave and, and weed it and give, put little flowers on it. Anyway, um, uh, the, the story was that Alistair Crowley went there and, uh, and uh, he was treated very well and, and had a nice time together. And then as he, as he left, he, uh, um, Gurdjieff uh, uh, said, okay, now you're no longer my guest, is that correct? And then Alistair Crowley said, uh, yes, and then he started screaming at him and said, "You dirty old bastard!" And you know, you you're a sick motherfucking pervert, and all this sort of stuff. So, so um, it seemed like very much crazy wisdom. Um, and I I don't know Crowley's work that well, but I know he has this concept of will. Um, and I and I've been sort of comparing the two and seeing that there's there's more of a similarity to that is the will and the intention that you do in let's say magic practice. Um, or, or an, an esoteric practice to, to what, what Gurdjieff was getting at. Colin Wilson's books, uh, such as The Occult and Beyond the Occult, um, bring Crowley and Gurdjieff very close together as examples of, of different degrees of mastery of a certain similar mm -hmm. kind of European alchemical wisdom lineage. Uh, I've heard several different versions of Crowley's visit to Gurdjieff, uh, and often they're told with a certain glee among the Gurdjieffian students, as if this awful other man was exposed yeah. and denounced. So that's a little bit suspicious, even though Crowley was far from a perfect adept. Uh, another thing to remember about that is if you read stories of Gurdjieff's later interactions with people, I've actually just been rereading Ladies of the Rope, which describes his interactions with a special group of female students that he was cultivating during the Second World War. He denounces all of them as being dirty all the time. So it's part uh, of his standard mode of engagement yeah. with people. And he believes very much that you should, uh, especially as he gets older, not waste your time. So he's going to drive people away with provocative statements. He's going to offer an energized interaction to his students. And he's going to um, make himself uh, have fun when he's doing them. I think the fun of Gurdjieff is often overlooked. And when you mm. go around some of the 
standard fourth way communities, they can have a certain sort of preciousness and seriousness about their yeah. discipline and their self remembering. Uh, even Jean de Salzman, I think you guys are going to do a bit of her book, The Reality of Being. Yeah. And she's fantastic. She's very developed. She's an impressive woman. Uh, her ability to walk you through the phenomenological first person experience of the insights and the exercises is amazing. But she seems to have completely missed that there was any art or humor or play in Gurdjieff's character. None of that comes through into Salzman and in her books well maybe in her dance that. there was there was more of that perhaps maybe in her dance yeah. yes she was very trained as a dance but you certainly don't get any sense of of robust humor and life vitality that is constantly ascribed to Gurdjieff through people who interacted with him mm -hmm. interesting interesting yeah um so what about the what about the, his notion of let's say the different you know he said man is legion and you know and we have all of these different sub personalities and um, and there are three centers right uh, the, we're a three brain creature he said other animals are two brain creatures we are a three brain creature and we we have to train these centers of attention um you know the uh the motility in the body the you know the heart and, and the emotive life and also the, the consciousness in the brain um i mean that still works for me on, on a phenomenological level i still i still use that i still think of that in it it's a very early teaching in terms of that stuff so any thoughts about 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 sure. his three-brained system it's possible to expand that outwards, right? And the work that I do tries to um, language it in a similar way in terms of the production of an additional quality of beingness through the harmonization of various subsystems. But you could break down those subsystems in many different ways. One of the simplest, most accessible, most traditional ways is just to think in terms of heart, mind, and body. And mm -hmm. that simplicity is not only very accessible, but it also goes along with the... Um, structural mathematical geometric way that Gurdjieff liked to phrase things he had a you know this notion of the octave and this notion of the trinity were very important to him and that's right. like a way of saying process and event the processes have this octave like unfolding and in order for a real event to exist you need three forces interacting with each other in certain ways so in order for an animal to make a leap to something that seems almost like it isn't an animal anymore. In order for that event to occur, there needs to be an interplay between these three dynamic forces. And so he often overlays those three dynamic forces on this notion of these individual subsystems of heart, mind, and body. But if you read closely and you read across all of his work, you'll find that he breaks the human being down in a variety of different ways. Sometimes he'll say five centers. Sometimes he'll describe uh -huh. an additional three uh, right. That is, and you look at it for a while, you assume he's talking heart, mind and body. But after a while, you think, oh, no, that's three other ones he's talking about. So he's very creative and very improvisational in the way that he dissects the human being. Although the simplest one to always come back to is heart, mind and body, training all three of them and trying to hold them in your experience in approximately equal weight so that they start to blend into a generalized beingness quality. And that's simpler when you're doing a sitting, when you're going to relax all of them. It's a little trickier, but also more interesting when you try to bring all three to bear equally in some kind of task or life activity. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and in a way, that was the fragmentation that he was describing is the, is the fact that these are all separate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, 
another way I was thinking that we could look at those is the logo, this the pathos and the mythos, which is something that we talk a lot about. Um, and that, that these are all so, sort of separate realms and and the whole maybe the whole Gurdjieff work is 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 to have them remain distinct but also un, unify them and, and that is the full expression of the human being. Yeah, it's very alchemical and a lot of his language yeah. could be considered to be in the alchemical tradition because it's spiritual and Western and chemical all at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that basic alchemical principle of separating and recombining is at work in a lot of Gurdjieff's thinking. So what yeah. you're going to do is you're going to show up assuming socially that you're an individual, but you aren't. You've got to break that down, right? All You have all these different voices, all these different functions. They each get to claim that they're the I. You have to be developing a metacognitive capacity to recognize their differences and see who's in charge and how they interact with each other. But once you've separated them, then you have the capacity for them to interact in new ways and achieve a higher degree of resonance, a better quality of temporary teamwork between all of these different subselves that mm -hmm. produces an effect that other people might even think is a more intense degree of individuality. Mm -hmm. Right, 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 right. Well, I just discovered something recently about Tantra and that I that the, the original meaning of Tantra was Rasayana. And Rasa is, is and that that basically means um alchemy. Uh, so so the Tantric schools in the East are are, are alchemical. And so that's how I'm thinking of Tantra these days as 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 the practice of alchemy. Um uh, I wonder, I wonder, it, it, I wonder, you know, and I sort of think of, of the fourth way as a tantric path. And I, I think of Gurdjieff as a tantric teacher, even though he, he wasn't, it wasn't a lot of, you know, sex parties or anything in, in his communities. Um, well, Rajneesh very explicitly mm -hmm. identified Gurdjieff as a tantric teacher. Yeah. Um, for whatever that's worth. Um, he did have a very robust sexual life. He had a number of interesting things to say about how sexual energy is transmuted potentially yeah. in our being. Yeah. Uh, if you read one of the most fun things to read about Gurdjieff is by Fritz Peters, the Boyhood with Gurdjieff books. He was a young boy who was raised in the ashram yeah. in Fontainebleau, right? And so he was not very interested in the teaching. He was just interested in the man. But he ended up hearing a lot of things from him about sexuality. It makes it a very entertaining book. But I think Tantra and alchemy and Gurdjieff's teaching have in common this notion of refinement, of transmutation, of taking all of the energies that are available to us and upgrading them and integrating them in new ways. Uh, and that's what sets them apart from a lot of uh, ascetic or exoteric religion in which yes, people yes. want to put aside disturbing elements of themselves in order to achieve a religious purity. Gurdjieff very is very good. much yeah. against that. If you read through Beelzebub's tales, he'll say again and again, self-calming is the devil that holds us back. Right? So he's mm -hmm. very much interested in the opposite of self-calming, which is some kind of productive agitation in the system, some way of using our various instinctive agitations at a higher level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I guess what about sexuality? I mean, he was married and uh, didn't have a lot of extramarital affairs compared to like some of these other guys who are known, well known as being tantric teachers like Trump, which doesn't really matter to me. I, I just, I think um, I, I just wanted to, um, I, I just think he's, he's a very pure, crazy wisdom um, type of teacher. And, and I, and um, I think a lot of people saw him that way. And 
maybe we could maybe I could ask you about that. What what is what is the point and they of, of crazy wisdom and how does it work? I mean, that's a difficult question. It's very much debated whether crazy wisdom is even something. But there are a number of people who we might consider to be legitimate Dharma teachers or some degree of legitimacy in their Dharma teaching who feel like, A, it's important to be transformative, to be protean, to play roles. B, it's important to fold in all of the energies of the human organism and human relationships and the different dimensions of existence and who see the value in being provocative and elusive with other people. And they're very good arguments to be made in favor of all three of those things. But at the same time, if anybody starts doing that on purpose, it can lead to very treacherous outcomes where you think indulging whatever you want to do and fucking with anyone else in the way that you want to do that is inherently benevolent in some way. So yeah. it, it only really works. So being an asshole is not really complex. crazy wisdom. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an expression of a very rich experience of the human condition combined with high spiritual development. Those don't always go together. When they do go together, then you have something very, very beautiful, very sweet, very powerful, and very transformative, where the the deep compassion, the deep holiness often veils itself and, re and requires people to dig in and stay with it, struggle through to the core. Mm -hmm. So what about this notion of, of, of uh, conscious suffering? Can we Can we talk about that a little bit? Because that's well, one of my favorite of his notions and, and that I, sure. you know. If you look at what's in his writings about what the essence of self-development is, he calls it being mm -hmm. part kdolg duty, right? So your existential obligation subdivides into two categories that he calls conscious labor and intentional suffering. Being obligation debt, is that is that what you just said that's, or is that something else? Uh, being part kdolg duty has a variety of different speculative translations. Okay. I would just Different think translations. generally as your mm -hmm. your existential your existential duty as a developing organism of some yes. kind. So it subdivides into conscious labor and voluntary suffering, intentional suffering, that is to say, because there's a very careful point that he makes in his third and last book about the difference between intentional and voluntary suffering. But there's this desire to lean into on purpose with some kind of sensitivity to your conditions of particularly repeated sufferings, the kind of conditions of cognitive dissonance and visceral discomfort that we normally evade or even get upset about if anyone points out. Yeah. Now, to my way of thinking, one of the things that's doing is allowing you to integrate more of your internal subsystems because wherever two of those systems refuse to merge properly, you, what you get is an effect that is a little bit like a, a resistance or a displeasure. You get a strong affect that your system tries to avoid. And in order to bring those two together, you have to be better at showing up in the gap between those two systems. Now, yes. a perfect example of this, and Gurdjieff points to this a lot, is the practice of remorse. Right. So the intentional leaning in to the dissonance between your values and your own behavior, right? So most of the time we try to avoid that. If people call us on something, we kind of instinctively flex away from it. But there's a sense in which you have the opportunity to be an intentional experiencer of the difficult gap between what you would like to have done and what you actually did. And that remorse is one example of the sort of... Uh, uh, wish generating lamp that uh -huh. suffering uh -huh. offers us, but only when we intentionally lean into it. 
right? People yes. might have heard Jordan Peterson's description of exposure therapy, where exposure therapy works in the degree to which the person agrees to it. If someone's afraid of spiders and you throw spiders on them, that doesn't help. It tends to re-trigger their programming. But if they're afraid of spiders and you can get them to agree to have some further engagement with spiders voluntarily, then that amount of difficulty tends to help them liberate, transform, and grow. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, one of the things that kind of hits me with Gertschef is is uh, he wants you to see what he calls the terror of the situation. Like he wants you to see, you know, he says, he says look around you, well, look at all the people on the street, you know, they're asleep, you know, they're, if you could actually feel, you know, how mechanical and asleep they were, you might have a heart attack, you know, and, and die on the spot because of the terror of the situation. Yeah, there's a question of the motivational energy that's necessary for the spiritual path, right? Yeah. So you could you could adapt to a spiritual path that sounds very nice, makes you feel very good, makes you feel very relaxed. And then over years, you might notice with some upset that you haven't transformed very much. You could also be the kind of person who has tremendous epiphanies sometimes and you can't hold on to them. You just go back to your normal way of living afterwards. So when you start to look at all these different ways in which people can experience spirituality, you say, well, what is it that keeps me actually moving forward in my development? And what is it that would give me the capacity to restructure myself around my insights and to hold on to them? Where do I get the fuel to keep moving and the capacity to assimilate the experiences I've actually glimpsed already. So a lot of his work is around producing this energy and this fuel, this ability to reconfigure yourself and keep changing. And when you look at where you get that fuel, it's very often the areas that we would think of as unpleasant, yeah. uh, inner conflict, um, the fact of mortality, the disturbing unconsciousness of all beings, including ourselves, right? This kind of, you can emotionally, viscerally, really deeply appreciate the ways in which things are fucked up and not in control and which you yourself continue to fail to do the things that you want to do and think you're setting out to do. That horror, that dissonance would give you a lot of the motivating energy necessary to keep moving along the path. Yeah, it makes me think of... of uh you know, a story of when he disbanded his ashram and kind of kicked out all of his disciples, like every single one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, after, and then he had a car accident and he seemed to be going towards chaos rather than running away from it in every moment. And someone asked you, why don't you just have a nice house in Fontainebleau with a garden? And he said, because I'm a man and not a dog, you know. So he would go towards the difficult thing in, in, in all situations. And when he was writing his book, um, you know, I live in, near Paris and, and, and uh, he would write his book in, in the Cafe Opera, uh, which is the noisiest, most annoying, expensive, awful cafe in all of Paris. And he'd sit there right in the middle of that and write his, his book. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be in search of tranquility. He seemed to be in search of, you know, at the edge. Yeah, that has at least two aspects to it. One is that, you know, the leading edge of emergence is something that a lot of the communities we're involved in talk about these days, right? And that's where you need to stay at the leading edge at the proximate learning zone where your flow states are occurring somewhere between your capacity and what you can't handle, where you're turning chaos into new order. That's how yeah. we grow. That's how we move through life. But the other part of it is 
that's where the intentionality is available. You don't have to be intentional when it's already something you're adapted to, when it's already something you like. If something's pushing back at you and you have to push back at it, then you have to start doing that on purpose, right? To create hassle for yourself is not something that an organism will automatically do. It's something you have to do on purpose. And what it does is it starts to activate, let's say, the muscle of on-purposeness, which is a huge part of how we produce metacognition and organize our lives in a developmental direction. Okay. So again, we're coming back to like almost the will to power here. And then, then you know, and uh, Alistair Crowley's will and, and this business of will, um, which, which I've been thinking about a lot. I, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you, what, and, and often I think Eastern traditions are sort of like about banishing the will or about, you know, uh, burning away the will um, and, and surrender. So how do you, how do you put those two together? Yeah, you can get a little bit lopsided in either direction. You can think that the will itself is a problem, or you can think that the ordinary everyday experience of the will is the essence of the will. And I think Gurdjieff would ignore both of those. And mm -hmm. The way he thinks about it is the will is some deeper expression of the more organized subconscious totality of your being. There's something in you that could have will, but it's not you. It's not your conscious waking personality that pretends it's a singular entity. And that personality might think that it has a, has a certain intense set of desires. Grudev is very clear that if you have well, a very intense, very consistent desire that you continue to enforce on the world, that's not the will. That's just a person who has a very fixated pattern of desiring that the actual is the will, will the, is the will God is the will the divine. I mean, that's that's I think it's often described as that in that teaching. You're using psychoanalytical terms, mm -hmm. but 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 um, well, if you look at, say, one of Gurdjieff's students was J.G. Bennett. He did a lot of work on the will. Uh, he also worked very much with a lot of Sufi traditions in his later life. And from that vantage point, he thinks of the will as being the creative, completely unmanifest expression of causal potency. Yes. So that it's always there, but it never really shows up. But you can move into greater resonance with it through a series of developments. And those developments are mediated by a part of yourself that's hidden by rather than revealed by your conscious personality. So from Gurdjieff's in a practical point of view, rather than the really metaphysical point of view about what is the will... It's this ability for you to do things, but you are not the one who does the things, right? You don't even know what your real values are. Some other part of you knows that part has to be stimulated, provoked, allowed to take over your organism, allowed to, you know, in the sort of Ian McGilchrist sense that that right brain has to get the left brain to be a better servant and helper to its purposes. And when its purposes are expressed, then you move through life with something like a will. But what you can come up with in the conscious part of the waking brain, based on your previous desires, your previous habits, and all the associative mm. ideas you've learned in your life, that's not really the will per se in a Gurdjieffian sense. Well, in a, the will, the will uh, you know, he talks about the, the you know, the people, the wanting to be, right, which is primordial, we're born with the desire to be, right, this powerful desire to be, and then at, when we become adults, oh, no, he's frozen, that's frozen, and we come to tap back, okay, 
I'm gonna say it's not going back to some childish oceanic state or whatever, but it's it's it's, it's connecting to some kind of primordial will to be. Uh, that's how I think about it. But again, it's I, not I the will of like the this. persona or the or the person. It's it's something more deeper than that. Here's one way that I would summarize Gurdjieff's teaching: is that we are we are born with these hereditary intelligence capacities that are built into the organism. Right. And it works with unconscious intelligence primarily. And within this, there are a whole number of instincts that include instincts that we would call very spiritual, include things like a deep will to be. Uh, and as we age, we adapt to our social environment and we acquire a different additional set of social capacities that are moderated primarily through the brain and through the sensory organs at a particular brainwave frequency where all of our perceptions and educations are organized in a social frame. And what we need to do is open that up to the point that we can re-energize those parts that got sealed off in childhood, so which are currently relegated to the subconscious, so that they can start to uh, take over and manifest themselves and become the dominant aspect of the personality. And part of that will be the reinvigoration of these spiritualizing instincts that are built into the organism that tend to get papered over by the ordinary socialized personality. So re-evoking those is a lot of what Gurdjieff is working on. And the will to be, the wish to be, the urge to be more, to be hyper-personal rather than impersonal or merely personal is a big part of what that is. Yeah, so, so the will is never really egoic, is it? It depends how we define the will, but this kind of will we're talking about is, is certainly not egoic, right? The, the urge, the fundamental urging of the will to grow and to change and to be and to be the instantiated version of the unconditional, um, that is much deeper than the ego and is something that the ego has to make room for if it's going to show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about uh, Gurdjieff's lineage and his background in terms of being sort of from the East and a guy who went to the East, you know, he, he went to Tibet before, well, Tibet was already closed off. You know, he traveled through the Kalahari desert. He, he, you know, he, he, he knew Eastern mysticism. He knew Sufism. He knew, he knew all kinds of different schools, wisdom schools. And he arrived in the West and kind of proclaimed to have this new teaching, which had been, well, old teaching that had been forgotten. Um, so um, maybe you can comment on that. What, like, what, 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 what's the East-West? I think one of the interesting things about Gurdjieff, I don't know if you agree, is that he combines the East and the West in a very profound way. He was very overt about his concern to combine the East and the West. Yes. Right? He was one of the first people to talk in that fashion. And we might even say he was one of the first people to say, to comment on the meta crisis, that there's a teaching that needs to come forward and needs to come forward in a certain way that combines classical wisdom techniques we associate with the East and also with the innovative energy we associate with the West. And if we don't do that well, we're going to ruin the developmental potentials and livability of the earth. So he's very focused on the planetary, he's very focused on the ecological, he's very focused on the historical transformation. Where the teaching comes from is a matter for speculation, right? There's yeah. a lot of people who think that he made it up. There's a lot of people, the Sufis claim that it's theirs. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, was he taught by the Sarmung Brotherhood in Central Asia? Did he reconstruct the Shemsu Hors teaching in ancient Egypt? <laughs> yeah. There was some early Egyptian esoteric Christianity that comes from the first sacred civilization. Yeah, he, he claimed to have a map from pre-Sand Egypt. <laughs> That's right. And, and yeah. in fact, that was a pretty wild claim at the time. But now we have a lot of reason to think, oh, yeah, that's actually what what was going on. Egypt had a very rich culture thousands of years before the pyramids and that the Sphinx was in the green and in the rain for a long time. And that it may have been built by people who were emissaries from a collapsed earlier civilization. Well, there's a lot of interesting archaeological evidence pointing in that direction now. Well, it seemed pretty wild at the time. So whether he was instructed by a secret brotherhood or whether he pieced together an ancient tradition, whether he made it up, whether the saucer people taught him, I think it's fun to play with all those possibilities, but he deliberately obscures the tradition, even as he speaks about it, even as he gives you stories in his autobiographical book. Uh, at the same time, he always obscures it and makes it a question for open-ended pondering rather than a question for believing. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the pure trickster magician uh, that, that he was. Yeah. Um, okay, well, is there anything, um, I, before I open this up to, we have a lot of people uh, here who might have some interesting questions. Uh, and if, if you do have some questions, maybe write them in the chat and, uh, and maybe Owen can, can help me out a bit and, um, you know, and, and, and getting pe directing people to ask the question. Do you have any, 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 like, final sort of rounding off comments or thoughts to say about, you know, Gurdjieff and what his, his importance is and how, how he can be of assistance to us. Well, two things come up for me. One is it's a very powerfully human character. A lot of our great spiritual teachers are not very human, either because they get, um, suckered into an audience capture mode and start to think that they're the most precious enlightened being ever, or they dispensed with part of their own human nature in order to pursue their development in a very intense way. He doesn't seem to have done either of these. He seems to have been a very complete human being, right? Interested in food, interested in sex, interested in language, interested in travel, uh, artistic and rational and irrational, international and national, conservative and progressive, humorous and serious, right? He had this full, full palette of human experiences. And I think that's important going forward because I think we're looking for a spirituality that isn't just ascetic, isn't just traditional, that it has this broader understanding of the full richness of what it means to be a human being, and especially a human being that's always growing and transforming and trying to bring their embodied nature together with their social nature to create something more. And I think that's one of the things that he really offers us as a figure. But one of the other things that's really essential here, and often people don't catch this, is how deeply ecological this teaching is. So when he talks about growing new bodies, growing higher selves, these are part and parcel of providing a certain uh, experiential nutrient to the biosphere without which it will fail and collapse. So that our spiritual life in his teaching is inherently part of the overall experience of being in a biosphere and being in a solar system and being in a cosmos right? That there's a purpose to our spiritual life. There's a purpose to our activities. 
the, there's a, almost a, um, a normative orientation that the way you should think of your spiritual development is as serving a function in the ecosystem that you're a part of and not just something that's going on for yourself individually. And I think that's going to be very important going forward. All right. I'm constantly telling people that shamanism is a good example of the kind of spirituality we need because mm. our spirituality needs to be embodied and ecological very deeply if we're going to have any kind of thriving success in the strange new civilization that we're producing. Yeah. And I think maybe Gurdjieff was was a shaman in a sense, like, you know, he began with magic, right? He, he began doing magic, you know, putting spells on people and then and then he made a vow to 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 stop doing black magic and serve humanity or whatever. But uh, I think he was a profoundly shamanistic character. Anyway, um, perhaps at, at this moment we can we can open it. I'm going. To, I'll, I'll t put the spotlight off and I'll, I'll open this up to the group. Uh, how do I do that? Oh, I think Owen, you're now in charge. So if you're now um, in charge, so if you could, if you could, if you could open the the turn off the spotlight for both okay. me, yeah. me and Layman, and then and then we can take um, take questions. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will uh, I will shoot with a question actually, and then we've got one from Bard in the chat, and then everyone else, please feel free, feel free to slow stuff out. So mine is, I've been thinking a bit. Andrew was mentioning Crowley and I've been reading a bunch of Crowley over the summer and also kind of trying to trace the impact of Crowley through 20th century culture. But I come to the conversation about Gurdjieff. I'm totally naive about Gurdjieff, uh, kind of intentionally, actually. So we can do this semester as a blank slate for me. But um, what is the legacy of Gurdjieff in 20th century culture? Yeah, that's a neat question because in specific the fact that people who are involved in this tradition don't promote themselves as much as many of the other traditions, right? If somebody's into transcendental meditation, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> somebody's into Kabbalah, you might hear about it. If they're in the fourth way, they may never mention it. And so one of the things you find if you get involved in the fourth way is these constant little discoveries. You're like, oh, Mary Poppins author was in the fourth way, or I heard Bill Murray was doing the Gurdjieff work or something like that. So there's there's a deep sort of underground legacy in terms of who's been influenced by it. Um, but I think one of the things that's been. Uh, no, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> okay it's a it's a sneaky one very very yeah secretive. you might not see the legacy is my point okay i've got you well in that case uh mr bard okay how's kate bush <laughs> for somebody clearly was inspired by Gideon, among many many artists anyway uh i'd like to dig into the question of the collective subconscious and, and maybe a comparison here with Jung's term collective unconscious, which I would prefer to call the collective subconscious. But if, if you want to sort of lay out consciousness, subconsciousness, and unconsciousness to begin with, and then try to figure out where Gurdjieff arrives in all of this. Is there a collective subconscious? And is that what we're working with? 
I would say that's a very plausible way to describe what Gurdjieff is working with, right? It's very similar to Jung. He's discussing an individuation process. So then there's the obvious question of what's guiding people, what's navigating and controlling them prior to their individuation process, right? And we might uh, haggle about what individuation actually means versus the individual and the individual, but there's a sense in which we're being controlled by collective archetypes, collective patterns, collective forces, and in Gurdjieff's thinking, cosmic and biospheric forces as well, right? When he thinks about war, he's thinking about an effect of processes that might be going on in the solar system that individuals think they have agency over, but they don't. So a lot of his work is around asking people to deconstruct their superficial sense of agency. And what they find under that is some kind of a multitude. And that multitude is present across the human species somehow. So we would call that something like a collective subconscious. Uh, insofar as it can actually show up and talk and do things, right? Some of those functions are subjectively active. I can, I can feel my emotions, even if they're being controlled by the subconscious. Unconscious forces, we might say, don't show up for me at all, whether I'm an automaton or not. And the unconscious forces are vast, and they may contain some things that would be more incredible than consciousness, uh, but we just don't know what they are. And we have to stand in front of them as a mystery. And that's one of the other things, actually, that I would mention is Gurdjieff is very aware of informational opacity and the limits of knowledge, right? There's a lot of epistemic humility in Gurdjieff. His science of idiotism that he works on at the end, right? Even God is an idiot in that system. And when he breaks down the failure of the different wisdom teachings, or when he suggests that his own students are not going to be able to understand it properly, or he's constantly standing in front of the fact that it's not easy to transmit information. It's not easy to know things. And even the greatest adept is not perfectly in charge of all things, right? He says, even the angels don't know what it's like to be a human being and live on the earth, right? There's some fundamental gaps in understanding that are always going to be there with us. And he makes error correction and working with the limits of knowledge and therefore also working with the boundary of what's truly unconscious, very essential to his teaching. Great. If there's not a follow-up to that, um, we have, is it Yuri? Or Jurich? Uh, yeah, it's Yuri. Okay. So basically, if I understand correctly, uh, it seems that the focus is on sort of revealing all of the latent potentials in the body being and everything. And so that can be true, like a separation of like mind, heart, body and stimulating that or like any other possible distinction. And, and that seems to have like a connotation of like revealing what's there and sort of like a momentum behind the thing that is here. But how does he view creativity or like insight or like creating something from nothing? I think he sees it simultaneously as a bottom up and a top down process at once, right? So when you can take off the veil of the obviousness of being a singular being and discover that you have these different systems. And then you have the possibility of bringing these systems into a new relationship. And that new relationship will be more than the sum of the parts. 
So it will, that's the kind of eros element where you created something. But at the same time, the patterns that you create are available to you from the computational background of the universe, right? Well, Gurdjieff thinks about different levels of laws, different aspects or degrees of reality, right? And so some of those might be called essentially creative or something like that. Depends how much we take his mythology seriously or not. But in the mythology, there's a sense in which there's creative emanations from some layer of reality that isn't as bound by the patterns that bind us on the earth, and that those might come down and merge with and essentially be the same thing as the production of novelty from the synthesis or harmonization of our different parts, once we can become aware of those parts. Brett, you got your hand up? Yes. Um, so what is the upper limit of the biophysical? <clears throat> so you mentioned, um, Owen had put in the article that, um, uh, in the link to this chat, uh, he put that your biophysical model, where you link Gurdjieff's um, solar plexus, you say, why are, in the West, there's a tendency to go towards solar plexity or um, the uh, a specific uh, vibrational integrity of the throat chakra. So the Western uh, Tantra might have more of a tendency towards masculinity, but in his model, it's a biopsychosocial uh, bio adaptation towards the second hara, the hara chakra, and the relational complexities of the head and heart. So um, in relation to that, um, my question is, um, what is the upper limit of this uh, complexity, this kind of yin integrity? Uh, what is the intuition and how does it relate to Tantra as um, a biopsycho force or a even cultural? Uh, so that's my answer. Uh, that's my question actually, like wh where, where is the, how does it align with other models of intuition that intuit this um, tri-chakra complexity? Because in Tibetan Buddhism, there's also the third eye chakra, the throat and the heart. So it's a kind of tri-singularity within Tibetan Tantra. And it's, and also, and so um, there's a tendency to kind of skip over, I don't know. So like in the, in, in Tantra, in Tibetan Tantra, it's either the four chakra model or the five chakra model. Uh, so, or even three, if you're just doing a very simplified version, but it's never the seven, right? So I, I find this very, this, this, this sympathy with uh, Gurdjieff in Tibetan Tantra so I'm curious if there's any overlay and how does it relate to the grander cosmic understanding of, you know, what's the dynamic here? And is it, could you conceive of a 12 chakra Gurdjieff or a 28 chakra, for example? So that's my uh, intuition. And I want to ask, what are the upper limits? Brett, in Brett question. Yeah, ask a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, there's a lot of parts to that, Brett. Yeah, thank um, you. The... Although Gurdjieff talks a lot in terms of a three-system model, he also varies that quite a bit through the teaching and had did have some discussions with Uspensky about a five-chakra model where uh, something like cellular instinct and something like sexuality were added in addition to heart, mind, and body. I think one of the interesting things in his model that differs from some of the other tripartite models is that he doesn't think of the gut as being the, the third or physical center. Right. So for Gurdjieff, you've got an intellectual center that's somewhat represented by the neurological systems in the front of the skull. You've got an emotional system, which for him is the entire torso. It's the intelligence of all the organs 
which he sort of uh, mythologically says used to be integrated into the solar plexus, but that would be the stomach, that would be the lungs, that would be the heart, that would be all of those functions. And then for him, the body is distributed through the spine. It's more like the peripheral nervous system, um, the neuromuscular system extended autonomically. So that's a little bit different than systems that say uh, head, heart, and gut, for example. So I think that's an interesting distinction to make. As for the upper limits, um, uh, that question is a little bit vague to me, but I can say that he um, is very much concerned simultaneously with the production of this extra quality and the use of this extra quality to establish a connection with other latent intelligence systems in us, right? The pre-existing higher emotional and higher intellectual center, he originally calls them, so that they might perform some of the intuitive knowing functions, provided we can generate enough of the, of the fuel or the communication medium that would allow the ordinary consciousness to make some connection with that. Now, the other part is, of course, this cosmological fantasy that he creates about generating additional bodies. Um, first of all, a body that's um, like an energy body, and then in a body that's sort of like some eternal soul, which could play a role in the brain of God organizing the universe. Now, we could take that very symbolically, we could take that very literally, but essentially there's a notion that with enough of a certain kind of internal practice, you could phenomenologically create something in yourself that acts as if it's an additional body and has access to additional ranges of, ranges of thinking and feeling and knowing that go along with that body, so to speak. Now, what the upper limit is, it's hard to really say. If you look at this, the playful model of the science of idiots he made, he basically says human beings could go up to the 17th level of idiot. And beyond that, um, cosmic beings themselves could function. But if you had any sort of evolutionary background at all, you couldn't really play in that arena at the very top. Great. We've got a question from Johnny here as well. Johnny, do you want to read your question or do you want us to read it for you? Are you there? He's unmuted. Yeah, it's, um, it's basically what it says. Can you elaborate on the tacit point of knowledge you touched upon in your conversation with Jill Nephew on Gurdjieff? It seems to me that being able to hold multiple perspectives in regards to one's own pantheon or subpersonalities allows for becoming better to hold space for others' multiplicity of being, if that makes sense. Sure. There's uh, at least two things in that. One is absolutely, the more you're aware of your own multiplicity, the more you can hold space for the multiplicity of others, and the more you can move your experience through your different internal perspectives, the more you're likely to be able to sympathize and empathize with the perspectives of others as well. Um, the other part is these tacit pointers, right? It's very interesting the way he does this it's very gestural more so than descriptive right he'll make up a word uh, or he'll hyphenate a whole bunch of words together he's pointing at a structure he's not trying to say you already know what this thing is and i'm going to give you a word you already know so that you can refer back to the thing that you already know about his critique is that's how we normally communicate and that's what inhibits understanding from growing that actual understanding is based in activating a part of ourself that exists prior to the learning of language, 
prior to the learning of, say, socialized thought methods, that those have a role to play, but you have to activate these sort of pre-socialized sensibilities that exist before your cognitive ability to name and understand things. So it's more like saying, you know, whatever that thing is, right? So I, I had some dramatic experience, right? Okay, this is good. But if I start to tell you what it was, if I start to tell you that I saw Jesus, then I'm, I'm going down a pathway where I'm pretending like I knew what things were. And by going down that pathway, I'm, dis, I'm dissociating myself from the, the inchoate, quasi-subconscious, tacit, unformed layer of my being that I have to rely upon in order to produce understanding. Understanding is more visceral than knowledge. So in order to evoke that more visceral level, you have to be able to point at things in a way that doesn't get you trapped in the normal knowledge game. So he does that a lot with invented words, with words that are cross-linguistic, that are formed from multiple languages simultaneously, or which describes some sort of structural concept or mood that's not normally referenced in contemporary language. So these are the tacit pointers where he's sort of gesturing to something that might trigger an instinct. Um, the way I always relate to this was um, a, a Native American ceremony that I saw when I was in the Rocky Mountains in Banff. And there was a very lovely ceremonial dance. So then an old man came out in a very lovely garb. We had a speaker. And he held up an eagle feather and he said, the eagle feather is very sacred to my people. I already felt like I knew what he meant. And when he went on to describe what it represented, this kind of vision, this kind of intelligence, then he lost me. Because he moved from the tacit pointer, which has this visceral ability to evoke something subconscious and bodily in us, to a sort of social encyclopedia of meaning. So the, the issue is to get away from the social encyclopedia of meaning back to this ability to just stimulate these pre-socialized instincts that we're born with that we need to activate in order to transform our knowledge landscape into an understanding landscape. Great. I've got a question I want to throw in before we go to the next ones is... Um, what is the relationship of uh, Gurdjieff's teachings to organized religion? Is he fond? Is he critical? Do they go together? Yeah, Gurdjieff is very critical of organized religion and very in favor of religion. It's an interesting mix. Um, he suggests that trying to change somebody's deep cultural religious background is kind of an act of violence and it would interfere with their ability to grow as beings that they need that level of social cultural nonsense that's adapted to their type in order to move forward so you don't need to change anybody's religiosity if that's what they have that's their operating system and you work with that uh, he has a lot of interesting things to say about saints and avatars from across the religious landscape but he's extremely critical of organized religion, extremely critical of followers, extremely critical of the tendency to try to transmit religion from one conscious mind to another. And in his personal dealings, he was often very humorous and very aggressive with representatives of organized religion. One of the things in his autobiographical part of his trilogy, Meanings with Remarkable Men, uh, is something that I think it's his father, but it might have been his first tutor says to him, which is, 
if you want to lose your faith, make friends with a priest. So that's something, that's a saying that he's been working on since he was a child. Uh, so his experience is to move toward the really human dimension, which often undermines the, the apparent layer of social religion. So insofar as religion is a social phenomenon, we're carrying on, pretending we believe these are that propositions, pretending we're more spiritual than we actually are, he's extremely devastatingly critical of all of that stuff. But insofar as real full human beings are trying to engage with their humanity and reality through the language of myth, he's very interested in that and very supportive of it. Hmm. Something you said there about socio-cultural nonsense maybe andrew's question is a good follow to that about idiotism well i was just interested in 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 layman's take because we've mentioned this concept a couple times uh, in passing and i think it would be worth elaborating on uh what idiotism is yeah it's a fun phrasing uh idiot has two senses right on the one hand the the etymological roots of idiot sort of describe the unique individual, someone who has no social backing up for what they're saying. They're producing something interesting and unique of their own. They're going their own way, so they're an idiot. On the other hand, there's a sense of idiot in the common way, which is somebody who just doesn't understand and who acts foolishly and generates error through their activity. And that, of course, is something that we're all prone to. And Gurdjieff develops this sort of ritual game of toasting to the idiots and creating a typology of different kinds of people, which also doubles as a developmental spectrum in which all possible types of sapient beings are described as various kinds of idiots. So he starts diagnosing his students as idiots, but also the idiots go all the way up to the saints. They go all the way up to God, who's also an idiot. So that we're, um, you're having something like an integral model, right? You're having a typology and you're having a developmental spectrum and you're having all of these expanded possibilities, but you're not taking that so seriously that you think that means there are absolutely perfect entities in play. You still have to be aware that we're in a complex, fluctuating, co-generated reality in which there are limits to what you can do and what you can understand. So it's a very, the science of idiotism is a nice tool uh, but it's also a very good way of remembering um, that there's no magical solution to our development. You have to keep developing and keep growing, um, but you don't achieve a perfection of perfect knowledge. You're still some kind of fool at, at every place on the spectrum. Yes, it's a meditation on your own foolishness or, or whatever, right? Confronting your own foolishness. And they're very funny too. I, I encourage people to go and Go and have a look at, at Gurdjieff's classification of the 17. Is it 17 kinds of idiots? Is that uh, there's no. 17 sort of humanly accessible kinds of idiots? And then a right. of sort of cosmic scale idiots. Right. There's right. this is a very important feature of his work is this notion of working with failure and error and insufficiency. I think it probably comes out more in Gurdjieff's system than in most of the other Dharma traditions. Uh, one of the things you'll find in a lot of fourth way teachings is a concern about what they call the chief feature, which is an attempt by individuals with the help of their instructor to work out some recurring pattern in the way they continually to fuck up their own behavior, even in very small ways. I like one of the things in some of those contexts that I realized is my tendency to uh, congratulate myself before I'm done. 
And this is a very pervasive task. I would feel like I'd done the dishes when I'd only done a few of the dishes. I would bend forward to tie my shoelaces sometimes and straighten up before I'd even tied them. Felt like I'd already completed the task, right? So there's this sense in which trying to find a characteristic through line to the ways in which we are being idiots, even in the very small recurrent aspects of our interactions in life, this is very powerful. It's in some ways much more powerful than attaining temporary exalted states of consciousness in terms of what it does to your feeling of deep human maturity and existential satisfaction. I also think it's a transformational thing as well, like a tantric transformational thing. It's like, it's not about getting rid of those qualities necessarily. It's about, it's about illuminating them and transforming them or something. Anyway. Yeah, that's very much part of the Gurdjieff teaching, right? When I characterize it as the movement to the hyperpersonal rather than the impersonal, one of the ways to think about that is that all the structures of the unique individual are not only maintained intact, but they're even amplified in this approach. Right? So you're not trying to get rid of the things that make you peculiar or that make you an animal or that make you a, a strange, independent, vital being of some kind. You're trying to understand and inhabit and coordinate those things in a way that makes them more graceful and more beautiful and more perfectly strange so that you can be transparent to what is spiritually beyond that without ceasing to continue to play that role in the cosmos. So are you still there, Alexander? Do you want to ask your question? He's disappeared, but um, we could his question was, um, was Gurchev's music, which Alexander fucking loves, uh, incidental or fundamental to his teachings? And, uh, and how did he view his musical output? I would say that the music is fundamental. Uh, it's co-equal with the dances and the writings and his personal example. There, there's several fundamental aspects of the teaching, and they all cross-pollinate each other, right? So it's one thing to read about what people said about him. It's another thing to really spend some time rereading and exploring the writings. But even if you're doing that, you should be doing exercises, trying out the dances, listening to the music, things like that. Um, the music is beautifully tonal. If anybody here is a fan of David Lynch or Twin Peaks, you'll know that that sort of mood tone stuff that David Lynch does with Angela Badalamenti. It's very much like some of what Gurdjieff is doing. He's playing with the evocative power of tones and sequences to elicit particular states and especially to evoke and stimulate some kinds of subconscious instinctual activity in ourselves. Right. He describes this as replicating the music of ancient holy and sacred places and sacred dances. We don't know exactly how much is remembered and passed on and how much is generated by him as an artist, but it's an absolutely key way to understand how he thinks and goes beyond just listening to the music, which is incredible. It goes to this notion of resonance and harmony. Right, as an underlying set of metaphors that we find both in electricity and modern energetics, as well as in acoustics and music. And this notion of tones and scales of tones and harmonization and orchestration are absolutely central to the way Gurdjieff thinks and the way he organizes his transmission. Can I, I just want to add something to that. When, when I hear his music, there's a way in which there's always a gap 
in everything. So so you feel like there's a resolution in some movement in the music, and then you fall off a cliff, or you're just left hanging. So it creates an atmosphere of intense silence. I would say um, uh, somehow it doesn't. It'll. It, it's like his writing is is there to break down automatic patterns in your brain. The music always has also has that same effect uh, of creating a state of awake um, attention. Yeah. Yeah, it should make you a, a crisp, alert, vigilant participant who is experiencing the evocative sensations of those parts of ourselves that can be engaged in sacred practice. Yes, indeed. Another question that comes to my mind, and actually I throw this to both Lehman and Andrew, is... Um, <laughs> If Gurchev was with us today, what do you think he would say about modern culture? What would be his biggest areas of critique or interest, or where do you think he'd be working? If you read his critiques of communication, which are basically in the preface of every one of his books, <laughs> um, you get a sense that he's criticizing something that we could just as easily call social media today, right? He calls it journalism. He calls it the Bon Ton literary language. He's critiquing a surface level of social communication that sounds like it makes sense and informs you, but doesn't actually give you any information. It's junk food. It's easy to receive. And like eating some chips, it doesn't give you any nutrient. You'd actually have to chew up some complex food to get nutrient. And all of the things Gurdjieff says about literature and journalism can apply very directly to everything we call the news and everything we call social media today. So I think what one of the things he'd be doing today is applying that critique to the way that we exchange information at the surface of the digital society, as well as the critique he applied to the literary society, because it's roughly the same critique. There are ways that we're exchanging that are diminishing us, that are keeping us from knowing what we're talking about, that are preventing our adaptation to the world. And we need to be able to call ourselves on that and apply some intentionality so that we can exchange information in ways that make us uh, more adapted to the complexity of what we are and to the environment in which we're operating. Mm -hmm. yeah, my only addition to that would be I suspect that he wouldn't be a public figure. I suspect that 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 uh, that he wouldn't that he would be hidden somewhere, and that he would have like five or six students, and nobody would ever know who he was. Um, that would be my guess, but who knows? Yeah, it's hard so, to know whether he wanted to be more private or more public because he oscillated between these things. Uh -huh, Sometimes right. he would put on great shows. He did a presentation at Carnegie Hall in New York. Right? Right. He, he wanted the books to be publicly available, didn't copyright any of them so they could be given out. But at the same time, he was not parading in front of people and very often uh, put on disguises or laid traps for people so that he didn't have to interact so much with the surface level of the society around him. Yeah, well put. Mm. So we're coming up to like maybe uh, almost the the half an hour point. Um, I apologize to everybody. I forgot to mention how long this would go. So that was usually what we do is we do we go for an hour and a half in this kind of a conversation, and then um, and then Owen invites us to uh, you know uh, an after party uh, on another site called Wonder Room, 
where people get together and, and just casually chat about whatever they want in little groups. Um, so, so that's kind of our, our plan um, right now. Uh, I wanted to say that uh, that uh, to uh, really to thank um, Layman, I think we we couldn't have got a more titillating and 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 introduction to to, to Gurdjieff, and I'm sure I hope people will will, will follow up and and uh, and read his stuff and, and engage with him uh, as a result of 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 all of your your great observations about him. I also want to say is that in our um, in our community, we're going to have a study group next week where we're going to look at the basic uh, uh, ideas of Gurdjieff. I, I'm approaching him through John Salzman because I think she's a good introduction. Um, the, you know, the, the Gurdjieff universe is vast, but I think Salzman is a very good introduction to some of his major concepts. And uh, and then, um, and so so that's for, for, for members. Uh, and to become a member, you, you go to our site, um, uh, I need to put that up in the. Do we put that? Do we put the the links up in the in the chat yet? No, we didn't. Yes, I have, and I would just post. Oh, you have. Now. Very good. So, so the, you you go to the site, you write a letter, and and you you know just say what your your intention. Why do you want to become part of our community? Um, you know, and then uh, and then you can you can come and and help us out and, and join our our private groups where we're we're developing different groups with it. This is our public uh, face. Um, but we also have our private face where we have, again, study groups. There's a, there's a, there's a film group. I'm going to do a men's group starting uh, next week. It'll be, I'll give more information about that and, uh, and more things happening, uh, uh, um, later in the year. So please, you know, join us, become part of our community and, and, uh, that, that would be great. And, um, and in a couple of weeks we have, uh, Cadell last, and then we have the, and then we have the one and only Alexander Bard uh, in 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 um in about in yeah in in a, in a month. So so that's it. Does does any do you have anything to add, Owen? Um, anything else you want to say? Anything you want to say, uh, Layman, about you know where we can look at your work? Oh, I should also mention Layman has fantastic courses up on the Parallax website. He did two courses at, at Parallax that are great. He does all kinds of work uh, with different communities, uh, like um, like Integral and uh, and Emerge, and uh, you know he's involved in all kinds. He's he's all over the place. So, so so um, there, yeah, yeah. You so, you guys will see me around in various places. Uh, I just want to say that I love the Parallax Sangha. I love the work you guys are trying to set up. Anything I can do to be of help to it, happy to. Um, this is a lovely women's group you've got set up here. <laughs> and uh, when it comes to Gurdjieff, I think the, for me, and what I would encourage, even though starting with commentary, starting with the Salzman, those are very good places to start. Ultimately, you got to dive into his books and you've got to yeah. reread them, not just read them because you're, you know, it's, it's unfolds by layers. So reread his works and compare them against your life and your emerging insights. And don't assume you know what his teaching is or that anybody who talks about him knows what his teaching is. Just get in there, get messy, see what you can find. 